Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Sunday School Hour here at Faith Baptist Church, the only Sunday School Hour with all the flavor of your regular Sunday School Hour, but with half the trans fats. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> hey, a preacher's got a right, you know, to set his own stage, isn't that right? Amen. Thank you. You got a soundboard for me? <laughs> what, did, what did you do? <laughs> I've been waiting all day to be able to show that off. You got your own That's so fun. All right. 2 Kings chapter 12. This morning we see the reign of King Joash. Now, we talked about last week, which ties in with our lesson about Athalia. Not last week, but two weeks ago, because last week was our Cahoots game. Yeah. But uh, we saw Athalia, who was the mother of Ahazia, who was killed by Jehu. Now, that's a lot of names, but hopefully you're associating those names with the events that took place. Uh, Jehu was the one that was anointed as the next king and he went and he slew the king of Israel while he was at it he also slew the king of Judah so that was Ahaziah was the king of Judah his mother Athaliah was so um, distraught about what happened that she went about destroying all of the bloodline of David so that there would be no royal seed left alive she missed one and that was Jehu and we remember the lesson from last week, the priests and the guards uh, sort of watching over him uh, so that he might be anointed as king at the ripe old age of seven. But we come into chapter 12 and we see his time as king and what that looked like. And what a king might become if he was a king at such a young age. Uh, nowadays, we have so many different, you know, safeguards and stuff for kids to make sure that they're, you know, healthy and, you know, happy and mentally healthy by the time they mature into adulthood. But that wasn't always the case. In Bible times, kids were uh, put upon with as much responsibility sometimes as the adults. Uh, it's said that Mary was, I think, 13 or 14 when she gave birth to Jesus. So ages were very different than they are nowadays. Uh, but we see, uh, we'll start reading in verse one, it says, in the seventh year of Jehu, uh, Jehoash, which is uh, another name for Joash, began to reign. And 40 years reigned he in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Jehoash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all his days, wherein Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. We remember Jehoiada from the lesson a couple of weeks ago. That was the priest that told the guards where to go and what to do and anointed the seven-year-old Joash as the next king of Judah. So that same Jehoiada not only did the officiating, did the, uh, the necessary uh, accoutrements of uh, making him become king, 
but also took a personal investment in the life of this young man. Uh, so we see Jehoiada the priest instructing him in that which is right in the Lord. But verse 3 says, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. The high places were places of idolatry. They were basically natural um, temples, if you will, for false gods such as Baal and Ashtaroth. And so he did that which was right, but unfortunately he did not lead Israel to do the same. So we see number one this morning is funding the repairs. Funding the repairs. I'll give you some context for that in verse 4. It says, And Jehoash said to the priests, All the money of the dedicated things that is brought into the house of the Lord, even the money of every one that passeth the account, the money that every man is set at, and all the money that cometh into any man's heart to bring into the house of the Lord. Let the priests take it to them, every man of his acquaintance, and let them repair the breaches of the house, wheresoever any breach shall be found. But it was so that in the three and twentieth year of King Jehoash, the priests had not repaired the breaches of the house. Then King Jehoash called for Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said unto them, Why repair ye not the breaches of the house? Now therefore receive no more money of your acquaintance, but deliver it for the breaches of the house. And the priest consented to receive no more money of the people, neither to repair the breaches of the house. But Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bore a hole in the lid of it, and set it beside the altar on the right side, as one cometh into the house of the Lord. And the priests that kept the door put therein all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. So we see them funding the repairs. Uh, when it talks about the breaches of the house of the Lord, basically what that means is the temple was getting a little bit dilapidated. It was getting worn down, and there were some holes literally holes in the side of the, the building of the house of the temple of the Lord. There was parts of it were falling apart. The paint was wearing off. It, it needed some maintenance. It needed some touch up. You know, if you were in your house and your house had things that, you know, needed touch up here or needed fix there, you know, that honeydew list that has a tendency to go around households, it would begin to bother you after a while that it wasn't done, right? Once you noticed it, it would say, yeah, the paint's kind of coming off over there. I really need to touch that up. And then every time you pass that spot, you'd notice it, and it'll start to bother you a little more and a little more, right? Well, what happened here was that as time has gone on, and worship of Jehovah God, the God of Israel, as he's called, became less popular than other more modern worships, the funding and the care for the temple began to decrease as well. And so we see that the, the house of God was not being taken care of like it should have been. So Joash comes up with a, an idea. He says, All the money that cometh into any man's heart to bring into the house of the Lord. The repairs that need to be made couldn't be made unless people the people of Israel specifically had a generous heart. So what he's saying is he's saying we're going to take up a special um, donation offering. 
so people can give to the temple, and this money will be used specifically for repairs, to repair the breaches of the house of the Lord. And people gave. And nothing could have happened unless these people chose to be generous. Right? This wasn't a taxing. This wasn't required. Right? This wasn't anything anybody felt pressured into doing. This was something that uh, was generous. Something that you chose to do out of the goodness of your heart. Right? Like how you give to the church. Now we know that tithing isn't just generosity. It's a Bible command. We're meant to tithe 10% of our paycheck. We tithe any less we're robbing God. That's a commandment. Now anything you give above and beyond that 10%, that's generosity. That's what we call an offering. That's extra. Uh, if you're part of a church that has a missions program, which we have not had the honor of doing yet, but I look forward to someday, then that's above and beyond. If you partake in the building fund, which we do have, and we're saving up for, and we're looking toward the future, but if you partake in that above and beyond your 10%, your tithe, then that is the generosity too. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 6, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall, also, shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor somebody's come to me and said, Pastor, I'm, I'm really struggling financially. And if they ask me for help, I'm more than happy to help them out. But sometimes they want to talk about it for a while. You know, sometimes people want to say, it's just hard on me, this is tough, I don't know what to do. And I'll sit there and I'll listen to them and I'll have compassion for them. And then as they, they start to talk about it to me, I'll say, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? And typically they'll say, no, that's fine. And I'll say, have you been tithing regularly? And usually when a Christian's struggling financially, it's been my experience, the answer is no. They'd say, well, I haven't been able to. Or they'll say, well, I do as much as I can, but I can't afford to tithe 10%. But I've never seen a faithful tither tithing 10% every time they get paid that said, you know, I just came to the end of the month and I just couldn't pay my bills. I don't know what to do. Somehow I've always seen it where God takes care of his people. You be faithful to God, he'll be faithful to you. Right? That's Bible. That's what we just read, right? He which soweth sparingly reaps sparingly, and he that sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. The more you give, the more you get. Let me tell you, guys, God's shovel is bigger than yours. What do I mean by that? I mean, you shovel a little bit into his pile, he shovels a lot more back into yours. God will take care of you. Uh, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says, Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Right? When we give to God, it shouldn't be grudgingly, it shouldn't be worryingly, it shouldn't be out of fear or, or uh, resentment. It should be a cheerful giving. That's the kind of givers we should be, is cheerful givers, excited, 
and looking forward to the opportunity to give our money to the Lord. And say, I'm not giving my money to the Lord. I'm giving my money to the church. I'm giving my money to you. I'll promise you, if the money was going into my pocket, my life would look very different right now. But as it is, you give money to this church, it goes to the church. The only money I get is what's specifically noted for me. Other than that, the church gets everything you get, you give. So you can be in anticipation. You can be a cheerful giver looking forward to the day when we get to build a building or we get to purchase a, uh, a building or we get to finally move into the next phase of this church. And you can look at that place we're meeting at and you can say, I did some of that. I had a hand in that. I helped make that happen. That's an exciting thing. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. We should be cheerful givers. These were cheerful givers in Israel. They were cheerfully giving to the repairs of the breaches of the house of the Lord. But then it says, In the three and twentieth year of King Jehoash, the priests had not repaired the breaches of the house. So he starts when he's how old? Seven. And in his... 23rd year it still hadn't been repaired how many years is that what's 23 minus 7 it's math it is 16 years <laughs> 16 years very good yeah man so for but think about that for 16 years they had that money right they raised the money but in 16 years the repairs hadn't been made this means that the priests had spent the money that was intended to be used for the repairs on other things most likely but most likely they didn't spend it on themselves but on other things for the temple uh, that it didn't necessarily need uh, because we'll see a little bit later on that it specifically lists things that the money wasn't spent on. And when you see that a little bit later on in our lesson, you might think, why are they listing things the money wasn't spent on? And my theory is that it's because these were the things that the original money that was raised, it was spent on. These things instead of the repairs of the actual building. Uh, but it's important that if we're going to be in charge of something that belongs to God, that we be good managers of his property, right? Uh, the Bible term for that is stewardship. A steward is a synonym for a manager, right? A manager of a store, Mandy used to be a manager of a subway, right? She didn't own that subway, it didn't belong to her. She wasn't a franchise owner but she was responsible for the caretaking of that store. The people that worked there, the hiring and firing, the, the decisions that needed to be made, she was responsible for carrying those things out. And she was meant to do so, like any manager, the way that the ownership wanted her to do so. That's what it means to be a manager, or as the Bible calls it, a steward, is to manage the, the owner's property to the very best of your ability. 
Bible says in Luke chapter 16 and verse 10, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. Have you ever found that, that, found that to be true? Somebody who's faithful in the littler things is also faithful in the more important things. That when you give somebody responsibility for something that's smaller and they show up on time and they take care of it to the very best of their ability, that's somebody you're going to trust to take care of the more important things, right? But if you give somebody a job and they show up late, they halfway do it because they think it's beneath them or it's unimportant, that's not somebody you're going to trust for the more important things. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful in that which is much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Because if you give that guy more responsibility hoping it'll help him mature, that's not the way it's going to work. You're going to give an irresponsible person an important job and it's going to go undone. Because he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Mammon, in the Bible, who knows what that means? Anybody besides Amanda? Uh, maybe. Hmm? Uh, man? Nope. No. Money. Ooh. It means money. Unrighteous mammon. Mammon is always unrighteous. Not that it's evil, inherently, but that it's amoral. It's neutral. It's not good either. It's unrighteous. So, in other words, it's one of the least important things in the world. But that's not what the world teaches us, is it? The world teaches us that money is what makes the world go round. When it's actually gravity that makes the world go round, and we're rotating around the sun. And you know who set that up? The Bible tells us it was God. Scientists laugh at us for that, but they still have a theory of evolution, right? A theory of Big Bang that they haven't approved yet, so I don't look so stupid. You believe there's a creator that just put it all in place? Well, what do you believe? Well, I just believe it was all eternally in the middle of some space out there in the middle and just for no reason whatsoever it exploded one day and accidentally fell right into place. But you believe it was put there on purpose? How silly. Do you hear yourself? I mean, it all sounds pretty silly. No matter what the theory is, it sounds pretty silly one way or the other. And I'll admit, you know, creation on the surface sounds a little far-fetched. And I'm not too proud to admit that. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. Right? They're just so foolish. You know, it's so foolish for us to believe what we believe, but it's just as foolish what they believe. They don't have any proof for that. That's what a theoretical physicist does. They spend their whole career trying to prove what they have convinced themselves is true without any, you know, proof. Let God be true and every man a liar. Does anybody remember how we fell off on that rabbit trail? I don't either. Sorry. All right. Back on track. Unrighteous mammon. It's, it's amoral, right? It's less important than the spiritual things. It's beneath us. And what he's saying here is, if you can't even be responsible with unrighteous mammon, who's going to commit to your trust the true riches? Right? If you can't even be trusted with money, 
why would God trust you with the really important things? Something to think about. They had not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon. They had not been faithful with the true riches of the temple of the house of God. But then we see that the priests kept the door, uh, put therein all the priests that kept the door, put therein all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. So all the money that people brought in on a regular basis to the temple, they put in this chest that they had done, and they've got a plan now. Now we're going to regather the money because it's all been spent, but we're going to get it back. We're going to make it back up. Much like us, these priests were not perfect human beings, and they had made a mistake. But instead of beating themselves up about it, they chose to get back up and do what they could to fix it. Sitting around and feeling guilty will do nothing to repair the damage that we have done to our own lives, right? Sitting around and beating yourself up will do nothing to fix the mistakes you've made. The best thing you can do is try to turn around and make the best out of a bad situation that we have created for ourselves. The Bible says in Proverbs 24, 16, For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. But the wicked shall fall into mischief. In other words, the just man, the righteous man, he will fall, he will fail, he will lose, maybe even something important and valuable to him, but will get back up and keep trying to do the right thing. He'll get back up and keep attempting that thing he knows God's called him to do. This is something I know I'm meant to do. I feel it way deep down in my bones. I feel it in my gut. I feel it in my heart. I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And the righteous man falleth seven times and riseth back up again. But the wicked will fall and fall into mischief. They'll give up and they'll just decide, you know what? I'm going to lie, cheat, steal, beg, borrow, whatever I have to do, put myself first. I'm tired of getting hurt. I'm tired. I'm looking out for number one from now on because nobody else looks out for me. So I'm going to have to do it myself. That's what the wicked does. The righteous man falleth seven times and riseth again. Which brings us to number two this morning, repairing the breaches. In verse 10 of 2 Kings 12, it says, And it was so, when they saw that there was much money in the chest, that the king's scribes and the high priest came up, and they put up in bags and told the money that was found in the house of the Lord. And they gave the money being told into the hands of them that did the work, that had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they laid it out to the carpenters and builders that wrought upon the house of the Lord, and to masons, and to hewers of stone, and to buy timber and hewed stone to repair the breaches of the house of the Lord, and for all that was laid out for the house to repair it. How be it? There were not made for the house of the Lord bowls of silver, snuffers, basins, trumpets, any vessels of gold or vessels of silver of the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. But they gave that to the workmen and repaired therewith the house of the Lord. Moreover, they reckoned not with the men into whose hands they delivered the money to be bestowed on workmen, for they dealt faithfully. 
the trespass money and sin money was not brought into the house of the Lord. It was the priests. Because the guys got to eat, right? But we see them repairing the breaches. They gave the money, it says, being told into the hands of them that did the work. The priests of the house of God did not expect free or even cheap labor because it was for the temple. They expected to pay these hard-working men what they were owed. A Christian, more than anyone else, ought to conduct their business with dignity and righteousness. It is an absolute shame and it is a destitute to the, the reputation of Christianity for a known Christian businessman to conduct his business in an underhanded way. Honest to a fault should be the business motto for the Christian. The Bible says in Proverbs 11.3, The integrity of the upright shall guide them, but the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them. There is a way to do business that you can cut corners, you can cheat people, you can get ahead that way. But it will cost you in the long run. The more you cheat people, the more you get a reputation of cheating people. The more people are going to tell their friends, "Man, I wouldn't go to that. I wouldn't go to that place." They're going to cheat you. They're going to charge you more. They're going to try to take advantage of you if they think you don't know what you're talking about. I would go to this place over here. They're a little more honest. They'll they'll do you right over there. I got such a good deal over there. They were so nice. That what we tell people when we go somewhere, they were so nice. They helped me over there. They were friendly. They were honest. They didn't try to sell me something I didn't need, right? That's what we say about places. Those are the places you're going to recommend to your friends. So a man who's dishonest, cuts corners, and cheats people, it will hurt him in the long run. Righteousness will guide those that choose to do so. But uh, as it says, the wicked, or as it says, the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them. Their transgressions will destroy them uh, in their own business. Whether it be a restaurant, whether it be a car lot, whether it be a church, the way you choose to conduct your business, no matter where you work, will affect you in the long run. It says also, they dealt faithfully. They dealt faithfully. The man whose job it was to deliver the money to the hired workers, to the masons, to the, the carpenters, there, there was a middleman from the temple to those people. To the workers of stone and so forth, to the temple, there was a person whose job it was to take the money from the hands of these priests and deliver it to the hands of these workers. To use it to buy the materials so that they can use to, to build them and then pay them what they were owed, what they were worth. The men of, uh, it says that they dealt faithfully, but these men uh, whose job it was to deliver the money were of such an honest reputation that there was no need to even make sure that all the money got to the right place. 
That's amazing. Imagine being known as such an honest person that people, uh, that people know they can trust you without having to worry or check up on you. Imagine being of such a reputation that uh, somebody says, hey, do we need to make sure that got done? And they say, no, no, don't worry about it. They took care of it. That person took care of it. Well, man, I'm telling you, when that person takes care of something, it gets done, and it gets done right. The Bible says in Proverbs 13:5, a righteous man hateth lying, but a wicked man is loathsome and cometh to shame. They were of such an honest reputation, they despised lying so much that they were just trusted by the entire community. A righteous man hateth lying. That should be our natural inclination. If any sort of dishonesty is even mentioned, we should bristle up against it, right? The red flag should be popping up in our head. We should be saying, ah, I don't, that doesn't sound right. That sounds dishonest to me. I don't know that I can do that. That's how you get a reputation of being an honest person. But it says a wicked man is loathsome and cometh to shame. A person you know lies to solve their problems you're not going to look forward to having a conversation with that person. You don't look forward to talking to somebody and never being able to tell that was that just the truth or were they lying to me? You don't enjoy having to ask yourself that question. But you look forward to talking to somebody who's pleasant and honest with you. Which one are we going to be this morning? But then we see that the trespass money and sin, uh, sin money was not brought into the house of the Lord because it was the priest's. It was the people of Israel that were to provide for the men of God, and it was considered not only a commandment, but also an honor that they could do so. Anything we give or do for God should always be considered a privilege and an honor. Proverbs 11.25 says, The liberal sh uh, soul shall be made fat. Sorry, conservatives. The liberal soul shall be made fat. I don't need you guys to laugh anymore. I got my own laugh track. No, it's too late now. You keep it to yourself. The liberal soul shall be made fat, and he that watereth shall be watered also himself. Now, that's not talking about political parties, obviously. What it's talking about is being liberal uh, and being generous. You know, not being stingy, not hoarding it for yourself. But when you see somebody in need, you be willing and liberal enough to go out and help them. Right? Personal liberal, uh, liberality. That we use that which God has given us to do some good in this world. And God will bless us back in return. Which brings us to, thirdly and finally, the final moments of failure in the life of King Joash. So we've seen Joash saw a problem. There were breaches in the house of the Lord. I'm going to go and we're going to fix those. But then in verse 17, we see another problem arise and the king doesn't handle it so well. Verse 17 says, Then Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. 
And Haziel set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And Jehoash king of Judah took all the hallowed things that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Hazia his father, kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own hallowed things, and all the gold that was found in the treasures of the house of the Lord, and in the king's house, and sent it to Haziel king of Syria, and he went away from Jerusalem. And the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the king of Judah, the kings of Judah? And his servants arose and made a conspiracy and slew Joash in the house of Milo, which goeth down to Selah. For Jazachar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants smote him and he died. And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah his son reigned in his stead. We see, uh, firstly, in this passage, Haziel set his face to go up to Jerusalem. Does the name Haziel sound familiar to anybody? A little bit? Anybody remember who this is? Somebody's servant. I don't know which one. Yeah. Uh, let me remind you. 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 12. It's just the one verse, and I'm going to read it for you real quick. It says, And Haziel said, Why weepeth, my lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with the sword, and wilt dash their children and rip up their women with child. This was the servant to the king of Syria. And he's speaking here to Elisha. And he's talking to Elisha and as he's giving Elisha, he's giving Haziel the message of God for his master. And Elisha begins to just break down and weep there in front of him. And he says, why weepest thou? Why are you crying? What is the matter? And he says, because I know all the horrible things you're going to do. I know all the terrible things you're going to do to my people. And he leaves there kind of excited about it. He leaves there thinking, wow, I'm going to be so powerful. I'm going to be able to rip up women and a child. I'm going to be a king. Wow, how cool. He missed completely the point. If the choice is between being king, but being evil, and being a nobody, but being righteous, the nobody is the best choice. We sell our souls in the name of fame. But then when we get there, we realize how vain and pointless it all was. And then you're caught in this rat race, in this hamster wheel. You can't escape. A peaceful life of righteousness far outweighs a life of fame and fortune that's obtained in evil. But this is the fulfillment. We see 2 Kings 8 fulfilled here in chapter 12. But then we see what was the king's response. What did Joash do? He took all the gold in his house. He took all the gold out of the temple. 
He made a massive pile to give to Haziel to pay him for killing their people and seizing their lands. This was arguably Joash's worst moment as king. Without even putting up a fight, he chose to give up not only his possessions, but God's possessions, which were not his to give up. Remember, there is a separation. Remember, if we look back to the time of um, Saul, the time of King Saul, there is a separation between the office of the king and the office of the priest because Saul was punished for making sacrifices. Remember that story? They had the enemies coming in and uh, he was waiting for Samuel to get there to make the sacrifice. Samuel was taking too long for him, so he went and did it himself. And Samuel came along and said that he's going to be cursed for doing that for the rest of his time as king. And he was. There is supposed to be a separation between the ruling of the government and the ruling of the house of God. And yet here we see Joash taking, not only making an offering to the Lord, but now he's taking God's things and giving them away so that his neighbors won't bother him. That is a weak-willed king. Didn't even try to stand up and fight. We're talking about in Ezra. Uh, we just got through talking about how their enemies stood up and opposed them. And they came at them at the point of a sword and told them to stop working, and they did. But they continued to stop working for many years after that without even trying to go back and rebuild the house until, uh, until the uh, prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, show up and stir them up to continue the work. But for many years, they had just given up. Didn't even try. Didn't even put up a fight. This is the time, this is the day and age that we're talking about, a day where God's people have lost the power of God in their lives. Where we have forgotten about a God that parted the Red Sea and dropped an ocean on the heads of their enemies. We have forgotten about a God who when their people got hungry, He dropped holy bread from heaven to feed them and shot water, pure, clean, Ozarka water out of a rock. We're talking about the same God who, when Joshua and the children of Israel finally crossed the Jordan River, gave them victory over 13 warring nations, many of them all at once. He took out the middle of the ground, separated the north from the south. The north got scared and decided to all gather together against these Israelites because they were scared of them and still lost. That when Joshua needed more daylight for his battle, he asked God to keep the sun still in the sky. I cannot even begin to explain to you the physics of that. Because if the sun sits still in the sky, then gravity stops working and we all kind of float off into space. But God willed it to be so, so it kept working and the sun remained still in the sky. I can't begin to tell you how that worked, but it did. I have faith that it did. The same God who gave strength to Samson so that he could slay hundreds of uh, Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. The same God who anointed a little shepherd boy to be the next king of Israel. And nobody understood why until the next day he went to go see his brothers in battle. 
Why this little kid? He's just a kid. But he was the only human being within a thousand miles willing to go down into that valley, stand before that giant and said, you come to me with swords and with spears and with shields, but I come to you in the power of the name of God. One rock from his slingshot, he's done. They have forgotten about God's power. They have lost God's power in their life. Why is it? Because they're doing half measures, folks. Because they're doing that which is right in the sight of the Lord. And they're eliminating Baal worship. And they're eliminating the groves. But they don't get rid of the golden calves. Right? Because they'll eliminate the golden calves and they'll eliminate Baal worship, but they're keeping the Ashtaroth groves for people to worship in just in case. Half measures result in zero of God's power. You want to see God's power in your life? You need a full measure of devotion to Him. Then you will really see God show up in an amazing way. Why isn't God working for us in our day and age, in our generation? Why aren't we seeing Him work the way He did before? Because we are more focused on unrighteous mammon than we are true riches. We have lost the power of God. And if it's the last thing I do, I will spend every last moment of my life trying to help us get it back. God help us. You cannot... God cannot give you victory over the battles you don't fight. God cannot give you victory over the battles you don't fight. Luke 11, chapter 9, Jesus speaking, and He says, And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. He didn't say may. He didn't say possibly. He didn't say could be. He said shall. He said will. It is a promise. And the only thing we need to claim His promises are faith. He surrendered because He was powerless and faithless. Let it be said of our generation, we may lose a few battles, but we did so with every last measure of strength we had within us. That if we lost, we put up such a fight. The devil's going to beat us. We're going to go down. We're going to go down swinging. Because of his weak-willed leadership, a coup was staged. And he was killed. His own servants rose up against him and murdered him. Because I'm sure they thought they were doing Israel a favor by eliminating such a weak-willed king. Let it be said, though, that it's never God's will for us to solve problems with violence. That God would have us solve our problems the way Jesus solved his problems. What did he say? If he says, any man smite thee on the cheek, turn the other also. The Lord would not have us represent him with violence. I try to teach my kids, you know, kids, they had, you know, you don't have to teach them how to do things the wrong way. They're hardwired that way. You have to help them learn the right, what the right thing to do is. And, you know, when a kid gets frustrated, especially toward an adult, they kind of, they smack or they hit or they do something they're not supposed to do like that. And I've been trying to teach my kids to use your words. 
right? Use your words because you can't use your fists. You can't use your hands. You can't use violence. That's not going to work. Not only is it a bad thing to do, also it's not going to work out for you. Use your words because those are the most powerful things you have are words. It's like, I don't know, words don't seem as powerful as a weapon. Well, I'd imagine that uh, the President of the United States has more power with his pen than any single one of us would with any weapon at our disposal. The most eloquent speaker has more power than any arsenal on the entire planet. You really want the best tools at your possession? Learn to craft your words carefully. Learn to properly and adequately use your words and we can really do some good for the Lord. We can really accomplish some things in our own life. His servants arose and made a conspiracy and slew Joash. A weak-willed king met with a tragic end and his final act as king was his worst ever. That is our lesson for this morning. We'll be back at 11 o'clock.